All right, folks, welcome to the podcast. We're in Corpus Christi at the Heart Research Institute in the lovely office of Dr. Joe Fox. Dr. Fox, thanks for uh, having this uh, podcast here in your in your digs. This is a nice, it, nice my, space. My pleasure. Uh, um, I have a, you know, just a, a perfect view of uh, Corpus Christi Bay out in front of me, and uh, every time I look out there, I think oysters, so... <laughs> <laughs> So we have Dr. Fox here and Mr. Brad Lomax. Brad, thanks for joining. Hey, I'm excited to be here, and, and uh, I'm I'm an oyster man now. I've just I've been converted, and uh, so I, I'm excited about what what you guys are doing, Shane, with uh, with CCA, and of course Dr. Fox is the one who's brought me pretty much along this whole path. Uh, so well, uh, oysters I've, oysters are important to our to our base systems, and and certainly to all of us, and. I think it's, it's, this is going to be a fun conversation to talk about what's what's coming for the state of Texas. But before we do that, let's do introductions real quick. Uh, 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 this is Joe Fox. I'm the chair of Marine Resource uh, uh, Development here at Heart Research Institute. I'm also uh, a research scientist with Texas A&M AgriLife Research and a member of the faculty here at A&M Corpus Christi and Department of Life Sciences. You've had an interesting and and and. <laughs> Very interesting career, and, and your your path here is, um, I think, worth highlighting. So why don't you kind of just well, tell us your background well, and, and what you've done to, to get to where you are. Uh, the first time I was involved in uh, uh, anything to do with aquaculture, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that today, uh, was back in 1978 when I was at the University of Texas Marine Science in- Institute. I took a course in 19, way back, 1978, that's uh, 39, 39, 40 years ago, 41 41 years ago. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Math is hard. Kind of, kind of, kind of dates me. uh, But um, I took a course there and uh, wound up uh, uh, working in the Virgin Islands with uh, UTMSI. And then I uh, came back and uh, got involved in uh, um, all kinds of aquaculture, mainly uh, uh, shrimp aquaculture, not so much here in Texas, but in all other parts of the world, Southeast Asia, uh, Central America, two countries in Central America, Nicaragua and and Guatemala, and did that for a very long time. I eventually, uh, having been in Central America a while, I I, I had a strong desire to get back here uh, to my roots to Texas, and so I saw an advertisement in the in one of the aquaculture uh, journals uh, for a position here at A&M Corpus Christi to come in and teach and get involved in aquaculture. That was back in 98, uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, when uh, this university had probably about 4,800 <laughs> student, yeah. students. And uh, so I got with David McKee, and uh, um, uh, who I'm sure most of the listeners will also mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, he asked me to come in and apply, and uh, so I, I walked in and uh, gave a presentation, uh, filled out the application form, and uh, I, uh, um, the presentation was given without slides. It was on the <laughs> just on the fly there with no notes or anything, so uh, I did that, and I went back to my parents' house in Victoria up the road here, and uh, uh, the next day I got a call from the dean asking me to come in and that they had... Uh, uh, accepted my application and to go through the process, but I, I, I still continued working uh, primarily with uh, A&M AgriLife Research uh, in developing, uh, uh, working with David McKee to develop the what's now the Fisheries and Mariculture Masters Program. Uh, I, I'm sitting across the desk from one of its graduates, also. Yes, <laughs> so, you were my advisor. Yeah. And and what did we work on? You worked oysters. on oysters. <laughs> 
on oysters. And uh, um, anyhow, uh, so we, we um, worked both on shrimp, oysters, algae. Uh, I did a lot of work with finfish, uh, one of the uh, great groups I've had the, the honor of working with. And a, a great guy was uh, Robert Vega at Texas Parks and Wildlife Marine uh, uh, Development Center out in Flower Bluff. So uh, uh, working in a, you know, mainly up and down the coast in a variety of different aquaculture uh, uh, topics and areas, I, you know, started to get involved in oysters probably, uh, I guess it was uh, seven or eight years ago, or maybe even more, I guess it was with the onset of Deepwater Horizon. So, uh, um, um, you know, there's always a silver cloud or silver lining in every cloud, and uh, what it really that disaster, even though it was horrible for the Gulf of Mexico, what it did do is it represented uh, sort of a paradigm shift in the way thing, people started looking at uh, marine resources and, uh, and the use of, say, even things like aquaculture, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, for stock enhancement mm-hmm. uh, purposes all across the Gulf. And so uh, other states started moving on uh, the funding that was coming out of NERDA, uh, NIFWIF, and, and uh, uh, the glimmers of uh, the Restore Act. And so uh, uh, we sat down, uh, um, it was mainly uh, A&M AgriLife Research uh, people there. We sat down and generated a number of proposals <laughs> to that. We, I think we uh, fired off uh, five proposals to things that weren't even available for Texas <laughs> yet, uh, including Bucket 2 funding, which is just now coming around for Texas. And that was five or six years ago that we wrote a Bucket 2 proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, NERDA, also NIFWIF proposals. Uh, and trying to figure out how that would work for Texas. Ultimately, uh, uh, the opportunity came up for Bucket 1 funding as part of the Restore Act, the $18.3 billion settlement. Uh, and I think in that, uh, in uh, Restore, the total funds were somewhere around $7.8 billion or $8.3. I don't, I don't know what it was. But we knew that Texas was going to get some money out of it. And so we sat there and... Uh, said, why don't we focus on something that we can really make a difference in, something that was, uh, say, a fisheries uh, issue or, or a, a species that was sort of on, on the decline in terms of, of uh, commercial fishing, and that was uh, uh, the eastern oyster, so uh, um, um, previously known as the American oyster. But uh, uh, so we sat down and... and uh, started developing a proposal for Bucket 1 funding, which is, is sort of discretionary funding to the state of Texas. Uh, so each of the uh, Gulf states got money uh, through the governor's office to that particular state, and uh, the RFP for it came out, or the funding announcement came out probably um, four and a half years ago. I don't, I don't really, really remember how long it was ago that we started uh, uh, thinking about proposing to that. And then I got, uh, one day I got an email from a colleague of mine up the coast, Bill Balboa, and, and, and our esteemed host here, Shane Bonneau, to come over to Palacios and uh, have a look at a facility over them and think about, you know, something we could do with it. And that was the old Marine Education Center. Um, you used to be part of Texas State Technical College. Yes, right? that's right, that, that system. And it, it shut down. They stopped operating it about... I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, something like that. And uh, it was looking for a home. It's uh, managed by or controlled by the uh, Matagorda uh, County Navigation District, uh, Port of uh, Palacios, et cetera. And uh, so I 
I drove up there and we met the three of us and we walked through that. We had a tour of the place and I said, gosh, you know, I think this would make a really good uh, uh, facility for doing something with oysters. Mm-hmm. And it uh, uh, had a 700-foot pier on it and uh, 15,000 square feet of, of space within buildings there, uh, you know, com- really good security and, uh, um, and jutting out into uh, Trace Palacios Bay right uh, up the coast, about four miles from the Periyar Bass uh, Parks and Wildlife Facility, that, that uh, fisheries uh, uh, field station up there. Yeah. And so a lot of things just started coming together. And, and so uh, um, John Scarpa, who uh, came on board about that time with A&M Corpus Christi and I sat down and said, why don't we write something for uh, oysters? And so we uh, uh, wrote a proposal that would focus on uh, you know, rolling out the concept of oyster aquaculture to Texas, as well as developing a facility that would help facilitate some of the reef restoration efforts. Uh, there was one right across the bay, eight miles across the bay, Half Moon yeah. Reef, and uh, we started talking to people, uh, NGOs or conservation groups, about you know how we could uh, interface with them and help them out in terms of, of of reef building. So there was not only aquaculture, but it was reef restoration. And the third leg of the stool was uh, uh, environmental stewardship and doing outreach and education there in Palacios. And and you know everything really got precipitated uh, further along by the disaster that Hurricane Harvey represented. We put our proposal in over three years ago, you know, before Hurricane Harvey. And uh, um, and it's at a point right now uh, to where it's ready to go to the Treasury Department um, at, for final approval for release of funds. So we're looking at that project starting up, which is about a, a $6.6, $6.7 million project starting up in uh, – uh, the end of the summer. So a release of funds or are, are getting everything going the end of uh, end of the summer. Uh, uh, go ahead. We'll get in. Let's let's stop there and we'll get into kind of more into how that after we talk about uh, the mariculture bill, how that that okay. that piece can play plays a critical component, especially with that last part with regards to education and and right. training things like that. So, Brad, why don't you give us a, a brief introduction of yourself? I'm, I'm I'm happy to do that. I I have uh, my claim to fame is that I've owned and operated the Water Street Oyster Bar uh, since 1983. So I have managed to survive 35 years in the restaurant business and and uh, raising three kids. But I, I will I will tell you the the most fortuitous thing with me I, I sell about six hundred thousand raw oysters a year one restaurant Corpus Christi Texas and the this all started for me basically by being Joe Fox's neighbor Joe w- walked in my neighborhood and I walked with him a couple times and I got to know him and actually about eleven years ago Shane he. I was complaining about having to pay for the weight of oyster shells in my dumpster. Dumpster companies charge us by weight. And uh, Joe told me that oyster shells in the dumpster were a resource out of place. And, and with that began our oyster shell recycling project, which we're, I don't know, about a million and a half now, Joe. Uh, actual oyster shells that that when a, when a customer eats an oyster at the Water Street Oyster Bar, we save the shells in a separate area, and then Texas A&M students take that out to a drying area, and they end up back in the bay system. 
and, and I think that we're close. Water Street Oyster Bar is close to uh, 12 acres. We're responsible for 12 acres of oyster reefs back out in St. Charles Bay. That's spectacular. Yeah, a lot of that's at Goose Island, right? They're doing a lot of yep, work at Goose Island. Yeah, they do it. But, you know, the cool thing for me about it, Shane, was it, it bonded academia and business. I, I had a business problem. And, and the Joe Fox and, and the guys out here at heart with their scientific backgrounds and knowledge helped me to solve that problem. So I think it gave, at least from my standpoint, one, one operator, it gave a lot of credibility to the world of academia from a business perspective. So very cool. I liked it. And so Joe and I stayed in touch. We've become friends and we have a lot in common, both uh, rapidly deteriorating surfers. And uh, <laughs> some people call it aging. I'm just telling you, it's deterioration. Um, but and so, you know, Joe, uh, I, I'm, I'm thick headed, Shane. And but Joe, four or five years ago, started talking to me about mariculture. And this is what we need to do. And do do I know anybody uh, that could help get a bill, uh, write letters in support of uh, this bucket one mm -hmm. proposal and that there's money out there? And it just kind of bounced off and bounced off. And then uh, what changed me, honestly, is Joe made me watch an eight-minute video called Gospel of the Alabama Oyster. And, and I, I'm just telling you, uh, without getting into religion, I have seen the light through <laughs> through that gospel. And uh, it, it, it intrigued me, and it sparked my interest on a lot of different levels and and certainly i i would like to grow my own oysters i want i want to be able to control i want to be vertically integrated mm -hmm. there's an economic sure. benefit to that i am a surfer a fisherman a saltwater enthusiast i want our bays and estuaries to be healthy for generations so there's that aspect of it and and i i want to do you know for lack of a better term, Shane, I want to do cool stuff. This is cool stuff, and and I, and so anyway, I, I, I subsequent I met all these people that Joe mentioned, you know, Dr. Scarpa and all these folks, um, and and I went to the Oyster South um, Symposium, which I was the first or the second one in Charleston. And, you know, it's a real deal. It's a real industry. And I'm, I'm, I'm just stunned still that Texas is the only state with a coast that doesn't allow oyster aquaculture. This clean, better than wild product. You know, a lot of times when you're getting into aquaculture, there's, there's debate about the quality of wild. This is, in my opinion, and in the opinion, opinion of my guests, this is a product that is better when it's farmed, when it's raised in a controlled environment. So anyway, I mean, that's kind of where I am. And I got drug kicking and screaming in the legislative process. <laughs> and I'm going to be going joyfully out. But, you know. These what an eye well, opener. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of credit. Most of the credit goes to, to you guys and uh, HRI and, and you, Brad, and, and, and your, your network um, for getting this to where it is. Uh, um, because... Yeah, we're the only state that, that doesn't have oyster or, or bivalve mariculture, mm -hmm. and um, there is, you know, there's 
I think there's always some little bit of resistance to change or, or yep. afraid of the, the unknown. Uh, uh, and you guys stepped out there and are, are leading the way. And uh, the whole state is going to benefit from this, from from restaurants to consumers to, to watermen to folks that, you know, want to stay close to the coast but are, are tired of, of, you know, pulling a dredge or, or working hand tongs or – or, or want to do something that's cool, like you mentioned. And, yeah. and um, this is just a really neat opportunity. So, uh, like I said, credit goes, a lot of credit goes to you guys for getting us to where we are. So, this is, so let's just talk about the bill. So, uh, there's a bill going through the process. We're just going to refer to it as House Bill 1300. Senate Companion 682, the House Bill is sponsored by uh, Todd Hunter, and uh, the Senate Companion is sponsored by uh, Lois Kolkhorst. And the House version, they're, they're both the same. Uh, uh, on paper the house is has passed the bill out and uh, senate committee water and rural affairs will hear it very soon and uh, we'll all assume i'll be there uh, with bells and whistles and and touting all the good things that this bill will do but the bill basically if, if you had to summarize the text the bill gives parks and wildlife commission the authority to establish oyster mariculture in the state of texas is right. that and to, and to regulate it. And to regulate it. That's yes. correct. So rather than having something that's that's really prescriptive and, and detailed, this basically says to TPW, hey, make this program uh, to the best of your ability and, and regulate it. Uh, get this done by September 31st or 30th of 2020 and um, get this industry established. Right. Uh, so if someone wants to participate in that process, it's all an open public process that's, that's, that's correct so if you have an input when parks and wildlife starts scoping and public hearings on all this get involved go to those meetings show up and help shape this this program that, that's right and it, it's very important to note that when we first thought of uh promoting a, a bill of this nature that you know it was just a foregone conclusion that we would work through texas parks and wildlife because they have the experience and the know-how to do this. It, it, it's not something that we saw here at HRI is something that we would try to accomplish. It's not. It's really not in our our, our purview to do anything like that, anyhow. Uh, but we. Uh, it, it was such a breath of fresh air uh, to talk to uh, uh, the fisheries division guys and and everybody singing off the same sheet of music uh, with uh, CCA involved also. And and uh, I can't think of a really a more streamlined process uh, uh and i think we were covering all angles when we we went about that strategy mm -hmm. yeah certainly brad i wanted to jump back to something you mentioned in your in, in your intro just a second ago um you talked about your your customers or the consumers and they want that product right mm -hmm. do you do you do you get that feedback a lot i mean do they know can you, the savvy consumer do you think he can tell the difference between um one an oyster that's just wild harvested versus one that's been raised that you've bought from out of state that's been in aquaculture the yes and it's it's a developing i mean I, the other thing that's exciting about it shane is this is a developing industry and market in texas whereas in in you know, like in charleston the consumer is very educated and their their oyster lists rival their wine lists in descriptive terms and and size um we're going to be educating Texans in this process. And 
and and so what I what I've done is I've imported from other states Gulf oysters that were farm raised, and we they they are more expensive, especially when you have to bring them in from another state. But we'll we'll put them side by side, and people are stunned by uh, the. The cleanly—that's the wrong word—but it's it's a clean, well-presented oyster, the farm-raised oyster, where the one from the wild is from the wild. Sometimes they're a little beat up. Sometimes they're muddy. Yeah. Aquaculture product is very uniform. Yeah, very, very and, and uniform. So the 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 supply side and retail sector know what they're getting, and and it's it's it's, it's very predictable. And what's what's unbelievable is the difference in taste. The taste, you know, the the oyster takes on the character, the flavor characteristics of the bay in which it was raised. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you put a, a Copano Bay or Aransas Bay oyster out there next to a farm raised from Bayou La Battery um, in Alabama, they can taste the difference. And so it's going to be fun, and I think it's going to be profitable to educate our guests throughout texas Mm -hmm. and you know there's what's amazing is there's some joe and i met them at the texas restaurant association that there's some huge oyster sellers that are in dallas in austin in waco and so it's going to be my customers are intrigued by it and they're fascinated that we're doing this People ask me all the time. We went to that uh, expo at the, at the TRA Expo last summer in San Antonio, and there wasn't a restaurant owner or representative of a restaurant group that came by the booth that we had that wasn't interested in oysters <laughs> really? and that didn't want oysters <laughs> then and there. We want your oysters, but <laughs> slow down. <laughs> but but the, the fluctuations in availability, the fluctuations in price, the myth that they're no good in the summer, all, all of those things play. So I think we will sell more oysters and the, and the number of fishermen, seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you can't downplay the impact of having an organization like CCA behind this bill. You know, 700,000 members, or I, I don't know, I can't even Not remember. Not quite. <laughs> a million 700,000. <laughs> Seven million. We'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it's just astronomical, you know, speaking with you and, and the leadership of CCA, the, the impact y'all have. And so this, you know, Joe and I are willing to take all the credit you'll give us, but the reality is we would be – you know, a couple of voices out here at the on Ward Island in Corpus Christi. If it wasn't for Parks and Wildlife, and if it wasn't for CCA, wasn't for the Texas Restaurant Association, people who've really gotten behind this. Yeah, well, this is a this is this is a a, a no brainer. It, it brings groups together that may not normally work together on on pieces of legislation, but it brings us all together because it puts oysters in the water, which is number one. Mm-hmm. We need we need more oysters in the water, so they're going to do all those fascinating ecosystem services that the wild ones provide while these guys are in the water and they're going to be spawning so they're going to be potentially creating new reefs adjacent to these farms um but i think even equally as important i think it helps speaking to what you kind of were talking about it helps to kind of reshape the culture and what we think about about oysters we Mm -hmm. can this is the first step i think in transitioning into how we view oysters in our state and, um, and and that resource. And it really does open the door to farmers. There are people that want to get into aquaculture, mariculture, to do some really neat things. 
grow these oysters and i think it's a good time to talk about how different ways to grow them but grow these oysters in ways where you can influence the shape and the size and the texture of the meat um and and certainly the flavor depending on where you put it but just some really neat user inputs that are going to influence the end product which is that's that cool part that you talked about that's what's fun Mm -hmm. about it so dr fox why don't you talk about and i'd be happy to do it too but talk about uh different ways and methods of growing oysters in our base well the first thing uh that you need is is you basically need broodstock oysters here in texas um uh, we're starting from the premise that uh, uh, if we want to put oysters out in a bay for aquaculture, the broodstock have to come from that same bay. And uh, until we try, until we have better information on genetics and genetic diversity and the impact on it of putting oysters out there in the bay that spawn. Uh, but basically, you start with the land-based hatchery, and you get broodstock, and you condition them over time, fatten them up, uh, feed them a lot of algae, uh, um, keep them at cool temperature, and then you slowly raise the temperature up. Some people will just jumpstart them and go from 18 degrees Celsius up to 25, 26 degrees, and uh, uh, and they'll spawn. But basically, you're just trying to uh, fool uh, the broodstock into thinking, oh, it's springtime, it's time to spawn. There's a lot of, you know... Uh, uh, phytoplankton in the water they're filter feeders you know so uh, uh, we actually indoors in a hatchery we cause the oysters to uh, spawn and you have uh, you know eggs and sperm mixing you have fertilized uh, egg after that then you um, basically uh, that egg hatches out and you have larvae produced Uh, the larvae are reared on algae microscopic algae that you also produce in the hatchery up to a point and then as the oyster settles uh, as a petty villager larvae with a little foot on it, it's looking f- for some place to land. We provide that base for that uh, larva to land on and start, you know, developing as what we commonly see as an oyster nowadays, or as as a as a oyster that you see in the restaurant with the shell on it and all that. And so uh, we grow those quote unquote seed oysters uh, in a variety of different systems. Uh, it's it's like uh, talking to economists about the economy. If you have a hundred oyster uh, uh, farmers sitting in a room and you ask their opinion as to what to do, you'll get a hundred opinions. So, uh, uh, but it's the nursery phase. It's the nursery phase, and you uh, will grow an oyster, a seed oyster, up to about anywhere from. I mean, I've seen guys from twelve millimeters in size up to uh, 30, 35 millimeters. They will then go into the cages that we're talking about doing the culture in in the bay. And, and estuaries of the state of Texas. So you you stock them in there in bags, typically in a variety of different devices. Everything from cages that sit right off the bottom to uh, racks that sit on the bottom that you just put the bag on. Uh, and uh, you know, in shallower waters, typically you know anywhere from three and a half to maybe five six feet of water. Uh, so you can have cages that are really closely associated with the bottom or you can go with uh, um, what is now referred to as adjustable long line cages that are suspended from a, a cable or a rope that dips down into the water you put your uh, uh, oyster cages on on them they're a cage that just sort of hooks on to that cable and suspends a cage down into the water column uh, and so they sit there and they sort of rock back and forth with the wave action you can you know, just for a, a rough number on on bottom cages, you can 
you have big bottom cages. You have double stack bottom cages. So you can put anywhere from 100 oysters in there up to 300, 400, 500, 600 oysters, depending upon how big your cage is and what the situation is. Um, there's another type of cage that uh, floats on the surface. And uh, these are, are typically cages that have, for lack of a better term, pontoons associated with floats associated with them. And so they sit there and they float at the surface and they're pretty much uh, rigged together or moored together uh, so they don't just go wandering off with the wind. Uh, you have to manage these cages. And you have to, I think one of the most critical issues that... Um, everybody's going to face uh, uh, primarily parks and wildlife, and I know they've already started working on this, is where right. and how much. And that's, that's an entirely uh, other matter. Uh, we're in the process of trying to figure out um, not only where can you do it, but how much can you do in the places that look like they're conducive right. to, to farming. So you'll put an oyster out there, a seed oyster, in a, if it's in a bottom cage, it'll probably be in a bag. If it's in a, uh, an adjustable long line, long line cage, these are extruded plastic cages that are perforated. So you, in many cases, you don't need a bag for them. And it's a, almost like those are almost more just uh, cylinder baskets. You, know, you have one sitting here sitting in your office, and it's cylinder-shaped. And um, It's, it's right. prefab. Uh, you just snap them together. You can drive a truck over them, and they spring right back. Yeah. But you uh, typically stock out these farms in bags, uh, whether they're a floating cage or a bottom cage. And like I said, the ALS, you don't need a, a, a bag in them. But you stock those little seed oysters in there at really high densities. And the, the objective is to spread that out over time. As the oysters get bigger, you lower the density, the number in, in a particular cage, till you get them spread out at an, at an appropriate density per cage. Uh, in terms of um, management, the whole issue is all about um, making sure that you don't you, you you stay ahead of the game in terms of soft and hard biofouling on the cages because these cages the only way that oyster gets food is if that water moves through the cage the only way they get oxygen is if the water moves through the cage so you have to keep the the cage pretty much clear of things that, that can cover these openings, whether it be wire, vinyl-coated wire mesh or whether it be the extruded plastic like the ALS cages. So you're out there working these. Uh, Brad Lomax uh, told me that this is not labor-intensive. It's just hard, hard work. work. <laughs> <laughs> labor-intensive to me means the number of employees. Uh, yeah. I come from the restaurant business. Um, so but you, it is hard work. So you can... You can um, you know, you, you see people making all kinds of recommendations given the situation, the scenario, whether you have a hard bottom, a soft bottom, whether you're using floating cages, etc. If If you're managing the biofouling, you're probably dealing with that cage and, and getting the uh, bio, biofouling organisms off of it some way, either by raising it up out of the water and letting it desiccate for a period of time, are pulling it up off the bottom, putting it on the deck of your boat, and spraying it down mm -hmm. uh, to get that off of there and putting it back in. Nonetheless, each cage is probably handled, uh, you know, in on at, at least well, uh, at the most on a weekly basis, in the least on a say every ten day and, basis. And some of these cages, you as the oyster grows, you increase your mesh size that you put them in. So that's right. The that bag the bag bag mesh size goes up. Yeah. And because, uh, you know, you almost have to have market-sized oyster on some of the, you know, the bottom cage, you know, strategies are, 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 are uh, 
cages that, that you would use, it's it's three-quarter inch or an inch mesh, mm-hmm. you know. So obviously you have to contain the oysters in the bag, but you got to take the bags out, clean them out. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the process is also grading because some oysters grow faster than others, uh, and so you're constantly taking oysters out, running them through a, a, a tumbler a tumbler grader combination uh, to size the oysters and sending back the little guys, consolidating them and sending them back. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, uh, um, um, you know, if you look at how they manage uh, and grow oysters on the West Coast versus, say, the Gulf Coast versus the East Coast, there's a whole variety of different strategies. There's software programs that have been developed for the guys that go out in the boats that have the bottom cages to find the cages that dictates, you know, we're going to harvest this cage this week or, or today these cages and they're all on a gps format and uh they're just steering they're looking at their little uh ipad uh, which has all of their cages marked on there and the fastest route from one to the next to the next and they're going out there picking up picking mm-hmm. them up um you know grading them and putting them back in the uh the one the cages that are very interesting are these als tubular type uh uh, uh you know, prefab extruded plastic cages, they really lend themselves to uh, mechanization. I mean, you can pull those, what, the way they're typically managed, and they're, they're not small, or, I mean, they're not big cages, they're small cages that one person can lift and hand up to the boat, throw them on the boat, and they stack them vertically, end on end, take them in, run them through a grater on land, uh, take the same cage that's empty, put it under the different chutes, that are on the grader and say fill them up with two inch oyster three inch mm-hmm. oyster or oysters that need to go back to the bay load them back on the boat take them out there drive out there and they're just throwing them off the boat and there's two guys in the water that are grabbing them hooking them back on the line and and off you go again so last thing i can say about the management is is that uh um, depending upon where you are east coast west coast northeast you know gulf coast whatever uh you know, you're talking about oysters that have much higher percentage survival than sitting on the reef, much higher density than what you would have on the reef. And so you're you're talking about a grow-out time that could be, say, here in Texas, as short as uh, eight months with the 25-millimeter seed oyster to, um, you know, over or up to even two years on the northeast coast if you're just, you know, just kind of casually managing, uh, you know, um, Say you have a lease there, and you're you're putting culch out, and you're putting bags on the bottom, whatever. Uh, it could be up to two years, depending upon the size of oyster you start with. Uh, to quote the guys at Murder Point, <laughs> ultimately, you know, you, you're going to get out of this business whatever you're willing to put into it. If you don't put in anything into it, you're not probably going to do well financially. And I think the same guys, and I, I can't remember, I might get the acreage wrong, but the acreage amount that they're managing is small. One to five acres. I can't remember what exactly what it was. I think was. it's about eight acres. Yeah. But basically, they are saying, I couldn't do anymore. This mm-hmm. is this is it. This is all I can handle. This it's it's enough for it's it's replacing what they were doing before with wild harvest. It, and uh, from a manpower standpoint, they were they were maxed out yeah. because it was so much hard work and so much you know the maintenance of the of the cages and calling and sorting. But they're in love with it and they're ate up with it. And it's yeah. totally redefined oyster culture in Alabama. I, I, I think the rule of thumb, the absolute maximum uh, one person could probably manage in terms of a farm would be about two acres. Absolute maximum. The, the rec- Depending upon the type of cage, and you know, you can imagine lifting uh, 
one person by himself. Right? One person so by themselves that, trying to lift the bottom cage that has three hundred yeah. oysters in it. That's a that's a pretty much an yeah. impossibility. So you got you have to have the boat. You have to have the davit on it. You know, and hoist those cages out of the water. Somebody's got to drive the boat. You know, it's it's it becomes more than a one person operation depending mm-hmm. upon what you're trying to do. But you know, for bottom cages or floating cages, you know, you're you're probably talking about starting with. If, if you're going to learn to uh, walk before you run, it, it might be a safe bet at about 150,000 oysters per acre. But, I mean, we've seen operations that are up to 700,000 oysters per acre, per acre. So, Brad, you <laughs> mentioned you, you process 600,000. I, I, yeah, I sell 600,000 oysters a year. So, you know, I could, I could handle one could farm, handle, yeah. you know, basically. Yeah. Um, but what we hope is that this is going to become an industry so that I can sell East Matagorda Bay oysters and Copano Bay oysters and and San Antonio Bay oysters. Um, but, I, you know, it, it would be nice to 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 sell what we raise. Sure. And we mm-hmm. we I can make my son buy my damn oysters. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd always have a supply. Yeah. He might not like the price of them, but he'd always have them. Exactly right. <laughs> well, that, you know, you mentioned East Matagorda Bay, Copano Bay, and Dr. Fox, you kind of touched on, you know, something that Parks and Wildlife is going to work on, and that's where these things are located. And it's one of the concerns that, that, we, that we hear, that I see online. People, you know, they're worried about having to drive around them or seeing them from their, from their backyard. But – we don't know where they're going to go yet, but we will say this, in that Parks and Wildlife is aware of all the user conflicts that are out there, mm-hmm. and they are, are it's all a, it's going to be open process, people can have input, people can, can weigh in on where they think these things should be, but number one, they're going to be where oysters can grow, habitat right. that's suitable for oysters, they're not going to be in places that are going to cover up seagrass or impact any or other, other oyster reefs, or other oyster reefs, any other, other resources, they're not going to be in, in popular sailing places. Um, they most likely won't be in really popular weight fishing or uh, recreational boating places. So Parks and Wildlife, and they're not going to be near or on existing gas leases. That oil and gas oil industry. And gas mm-hmm. that we're aware of. So Parks and Wildlife has a map that they're creating with all these different layers of these conflicts. And what's left are these spots in the bay systems that they've mm-hmm. identified that are that are suitable for, for um, oyster mariculture. And I think that's the starting point. But we'll see as the process plays out with the Parks and Wildlife Commission on where these things can go. One of the things that I'm interested in doing, and I have a proposal in, and that's to look at the siding also. Um, one of our researchers here at HRI, Jenny Pollock, has developed a, a suitability index for mm-hmm. oyster reef restoration that covers the entire Texas coast. And what we're working with Parks and Wildlife on, we'd, we'd, we'd like to work with them on it, is uh, – maybe taking that a notch further for the future and in, in developing a suitability index for oyster aquaculture, oh, yeah. what sort of grades different areas. Um, one of the things that we've seen from Jenny Pollock's work is that Copano Bay is probably the the healthiest uh, bay for oyster reef restoration, has the highest potential for reef restoration in, in the state of Texas. But it's uh, the Europeans uh, uh, are developing models that, that interface any siting model that's based on, say, salinity, physical uh, uh, variables, um, uh, multiple-use conflict issues, they are layering that in a, in a sort of a, a, a GIS format. But what the Europeans are doing is they're layering on top of that the inputs uh, that are needed for, the aquaculture, for aquaculture, cage, cage uh, uh, culture. 
uh, as well as the outputs. So that gets you to a point where you're actually saying uh, what the capacity of the, the area that you've designated uh, uh, would be, what, what would be a safe capacity. Because when you, talk, when you think about it, you're going to have cages out there with oysters in them. You're going to have reefs out there with oysters on them. And they're both competing, so to speak, for the same natural resource, which is the phytoplankton in the water, the oxygen, etc. And so there has to be, uh, you know, some kind of healthy coexistence that, that has to be developed uh, for this industry to be successful. You don't want to drag down the natural reefs. And at the same time, you want to be able to supply the, you know, the the restaurant industry, the the wholesalers with product. Yeah, yeah. So. It's interesting about I, I went and visited Lane Zerlot down at Murder Point, and uh, and he and I asked him, you know, I said, well, what about the is the fishing any good around here? And he said, you got a top water, <laughs> <laughs> go right down there. But a, but a reef has formed that is down current from his his farm i guess that's south i was so turned around in that place but a re, a, a natural oyster reef has formed kind of around the bend from uh, from his place and, and i'm just i want from an economic standpoint Shane, this is a absolute true story i told joe this on saturday i just dropped in on a place that i've been looking at up on san antonio bay in ostwell texas Ostwell, halfway between Rockport and Port Lavaca, a man um, named uh, Butch Hopper owns Hopper's Landing down there. And he wasn't real sure who, who uh, you know, I was like yeah, a carpetbagger. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. His, his wife didn't, it took a long way, long time for me to convert her. But I, I just said, you know, Mr. Hopper, you, you need to know that the, whether we can talk about maybe doing business together or not, you need to know that this legislature is moving through and your senator senator colkhorse is an author of this bill and this is and and i had a copy i had a copy of saltwater magazine with your article mm -hmm. in it that i left him and and as he warmed to me and they let me in on the porch took a while to get on the porch <laughs> um they he said you know we used to have 12 or 15 oyster boats that would work out of Hopper's Landing right there just south of Ostwell. And he said, seems to me that the oyster business is drying up because we don't have any oyster boats anymore. And I used to deal with people in Galveston and I used to deal with people in Rockport. We don't deal with anybody anymore. And, um, and I started talking to him about water clarity and and the other benefits to it. And he he said we rent don't, our only source of income anymore. Uh, Harvey silted in basically his marina the and the ramp. Yeah. He said the you know you can only use that ramp on certain tides. And these people are in their sixties. And Harvey beat them up, and they didn't get any FEMA money. And I just said, you know, Mr. Hopper, this this could change this whole thing for you. And he he saw it. I don't know what that means, except that there's a lot of people who don't want to leave their property, who don't, who want to continue to make a living on the water, and this provides a way to do that. And and they can sell their stuff. And there are people, there are knowledgeable people like Joe and others that will come down and help them set it up yeah that's the perfect segue because into in into in going back to the facility mm -hmm. that's that's going to happen there in Palacios because you you're not asking people to 
to get out of the oyster industry or to um, to to stop doing what they're doing. They stay true to their coastal heritage. They're still involved. They're still uh, working in the oyster industry. They're just doing it in a different fashion. Mm-hmm. And it does save that legacy that they've that you know that that, that they have. So this facility in Palacios is a pretty important part of that. So um, I guess you know you mentioned it. It'll do three things, but we'll run through those again, and then just Dr. Fox speak to how you know, that training piece is going to be critical moving forward in, in this. So there's, um, for that facility, the uh, um, Oyster Resource and Recovery Center in uh, uh, Palacios, uh, the three objectives there, number one is um, to provide some training for individuals who might be interested in uh, this um, culture of oysters in that area or other areas along the Texas coast. Uh, we would put cages out. That facility will have a hatchery in it. It'll produce eyed larvae. It will produce spat on shell, but it'll also produce seed oysters, which we'll use as part of that training program to help people become oriented towards it. The other objective is to help uh, some of the reef restoration efforts in terms of spat on shell or eyed larvae for uh, in situ uh, uh, planting of the larvae on reefs to you know you can picture this you've spent a lot of money developing a reef for reef restoration along comes a natural disaster uh, decimates the reef how do you get going again uh, you have a lot of freshwater intrusion and you have a bad spat set or something like that going on that's where we could work towards uh, helping out in the in development of uh, that particular situation reef building you jump start it you just yeah. jump started. Yeah. We also have the potential of helping uh, even the fishing industry in terms of private sector leases by, uh, you know, spat on shell to help them in, in the case. You know, there was a situation, I don't know what year, it was 2016 or 2015, where a lot of fresh water came into Galveston Bay and wiped out 90% of the oysters there. You know, how do you rebound from that? How do you uh, keep the supply going? How do you keep the economy of these coastal uh, uh, communities going? So the, the reef restoration, the hatchery there serves the purpose of training, eventually of the training, but also the reef restoration. And also it's a great environment. You know, when we looked at this and we wrote this bucket one proposal, we looked at all the little communities around that area and all the independent school districts and all the kids mm-hmm. that, that go to school there and all the, uh, you know, um, retirees that are coming in that want to learn a little bit more about what's going on the in the in the natural environment there. And so we, we uh, 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 budgeted quite a bit for outreach and education, environmental stewardship. So we will have a um, outreach and education manager. We'll have a hatchery manager and we'll have a reef restoration manager. So we look at, we look at ourselves as uh, uh, somebody coming to these different groups with open arms and saying, how can we help you? and providing them with some of the resources that they need to carry on, Mm -hmm. uh, but also to stimulate interest up and down the coast. Um, You know, uh, oyster reefs are very, very valuable. We talk about ecosystem services. You know, oysters are the greatest little engineers, aquatic engineers you could ever imagine, and always say there's not much you can say bad about an oyster. But these communities, as you alluded to earlier, were built upon oysters you know, oyster fishing. These are oyster-based communities along the entire coast. Uh, we want to get some of that working waterfront going again and, and maybe oysters mm-hmm. in their way 
can, can help that out. Yeah. There's another aspect of training. So there's training that's associated with the farming, but there's really maybe two other areas of training that are, I don't want to say maybe, are definitely needed, and that's, you know, how do you produce the larvae? Uh, you know, how does, a, how does a, a broodstock management go? Uh, you know, we, we're not so naive as to think that, uh, oh, you can just have one hatchery on the Texas coast and it's going to last forever. We, we've learned that so many times from hurricanes that that's, that's not a really good uh, uh, perspective to maintain. Uh, so we're looking at maybe having three hatcheries, lower uh, coast, mid coast, and upper coast, that would help you know, uh, uh, with reef restoration, with uh, the, the oyster uh, aquaculture, mariculture industry. Uh, and you know, of course, they would all do uh, have some kind of environmental stewardship, outreach, and education associated with them. So we need training for the hatchery. But there's another sort of interesting subset in there that comes after the hatchery, and that's the seed oyster production. And uh, you know, you always ask, how long are you going to be involved in this as an academic institution or a state-funded operation? The model is eventually turning that into a, maybe a public-private partnership or turning it over to the private sector that will really help the industry develop even further. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to tell people either that, uh, um, you know, these are the hatcheries, these are the only hatcheries that are going to be here. Because if you look up and down the East Coast, there's hatcheries all over the place, yeah. mom and pop size hatcheries. But I think it's very prudent to start with something, and the other states have shown that the model is to start with some kind of state-funded or, or federally-funded type institution, trickle-down funds from wherever, uh, to get the ball rolling and to get people trained properly so the industry has a really good chance of success. The, I, I strongly believe that as this industry develops, you will have a, a sort of a, a intermediate a type of operation or middleman quote-unquote middleman type operation where you're producing seed. Uh, the hatcheries can produce countless numbers of eyed larvae. Yeah, but yeah. then when you have to get something in the cage, you have to produce seed oysters. And that can be done virtually anywhere. Which uh, is another labor-intensive or, or uh, hard yeah, work uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, proposition. As a friend it, of it mine does. once said, it's nothing but a little hard work. Yeah, But it is very hard work. And that's one of the things that I'm I'm – growing more concerned about is as maybe as, as Brad and I deteriorate even further <laughs> is who is going to take the ban take up the banner and work hard and, and make this happen and that's why training is so important yeah. Brad can tell you about going to uh, these symposia and, and I've been to them too where you look out in the audience you have a you have a whole giant room full of people who are only interested in, in, you know, shellfish culture. But you look at the uh, demographics of those people, and maybe, Brad, you want to say something about what's impressed you about it. Well, they're, they're young people. You know, they're the, the people that are, you know, it's kind of like the whole farm-to-table movement and mm -hmm. the millennial, we want to know where our food's coming from. And I'm getting sick of that term, but... Um, that it looks to me like these are people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, not in their 50s, 60s, and beyond. And so I think that bodes well. And um, you know, you can make, you know, you can make a good living off a one, two, or three-acre farm. You know, you you won't be buying any private airplanes, but you'll be buying a new Ford F-250 or something similar every couple of years. And you know, you'll you can send your kids to college and make house payments, and and so I I think 
Yeah, it, it it's hard work, but anything's hard work if you hate it. You know, the restaurant business is hard work unless you love it. And if you love it, it's a calling. It's what you do. Yeah. I think there are people, a significant number of people, young people, who see this as a calling. A lot of the people that are out there practicing oyster aquaculture for a living come from the fishing industry, so they already know about hard work. But the real advantage to them is that, can you picture this? You know where your product is. You know where you're going. You're back home at night. You're able to uh, uh, you know, sleep in your own bed yes. <laughs> versus yeah. guys that are fishing the Gulf and, and what have you. But a lot of that infrastructure that they use, and I'm not t- talking about Gulf shrimpers boats, but uh, a lot of, of the infrastructure that's used to fish uh, the oyster reefs today uh, rolls right into uh, oyster uh, mariculture farming. Well, sure. Yeah. So the vessels could be used to lift cages and, and transport the crew and the crew. Yeah, absolutely. Everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I still go back to what Dr. McKinney said, Joe, is that that, you know, the the way we harvest oysters in the wild right now is the most destructive form of commercial fishing on the planet today. And so it is unsustainable, and and so this is a this is a way that the people who want to make a living on the water can continue to do so, because uh, it, it's going to go away. I mean, you've seen it, New York in the in the turn two turns of centuries ago in the eighteen hundreds, Chesapeake Bay, Biloxi, Mississippi, at one time the oyster shipping capital of the world. The 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 resource goes away. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just, this is a great opportunity to transition this industry and redefine the culture of oysters in Texas and do that cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Grow your own oysters. Yeah, how fascinating this is going to be is look at your menu mm-hmm. and see Brad's beauties or whatever <laughs> yeah, you're going to market them yeah. as. I don't know what you're going to call them. I can't wait to name them. <laughs> you're going to name them something really funky and cool, yeah, yeah. and they're going to be the most popular thing on your menu. And just the sense of uh, I would just be super proud and uh it's, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to be it, eventually. It's it's going to be something. If you look at the East Coast in terms of um, of the you know oyster gardening phenomenon that's taking place there, it's it's something that you know eventually with the right uh, rules and regs, uh, the average person might even be able to uh, get involved. Yeah, in. that's a great so, point for those that don't know. You know, other other parts of the country have um, these you know small growers associations, and they off their piers and docks have you know small cages or under their piers and docks and they grow their own oysters uh, buying seed from a hatchery and mm-hmm. just kind of a hobby type of thing that they mm-hmm. that they do and they they know that the oysters, oysters in the water are taking care of their base systems but they got something to snack on if they ever want to right. partake in it improves the fishing yeah for sure for those that are concerned about these things running fishing you've got it totally wrong yeah. <laughs> you'll want to be close you will want to be, yeah, be close right now noah's doing a uh I guess they have a really big uh, um, uh, funding program that's looking at biodiversity on on oyster aquaculture uh, farms or cages, cage setups. And uh, they've got a whole bunch of cages out there that are outfitted with GoPro cameras. And, and you I've seen, yeah, I've just seen have a look at that and look at the fish that are hanging out on on the, uh, on and around those cages. They're just an attractor for small yeah. fish and, oh, and bigger fish and bigger head, fish. Sheep's and, head, yeah, sheep's head. <laughs> Yeah, they're picking a number, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, guys, do you have anything you want to touch on that we haven't we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, I, the you know, the concern that I have uh, for getting this industry started here, one, it, and and it's it's proving to be uh, um, 
um, a task for us here in getting things going is we need the training more so than anything else because uh, we're trying to get people in from out of state to start jump you know to jump start some of these programs that we're funded to do here it's proving to be really rather difficult because the industry is expanding in the northeast and and in other parts of the gulf of mexico and the pacific of course at such a rate that there's there's jobs up there mm -hmm. and so uh what the task that we have facing us is that we we pretty much um you know anybody that wants come september 2020 to start something uh you know they're going to have to have some skills set to to start with, or they're going to have to hire somebody to do it for them, etc. Who is that person going to be, and where are they going to come from? Uh, when you've got a lot of jobs in these other areas, so mm -hmm. training is going to be absolutely essential. And I see us as starting, you know, to build our own cadre of 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 workers, not only in the hatchery, but you know, on the farm. And and on top of that, it's going to have to be people who really want to do this yeah. because it is hard work. Yeah. And so that's what I'm, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the timing of getting people trained with the startup of this this new industry for the for the you know the state of Texas. Well, hopefully, hopefully there's people that'll see that there's a lot of potential here, and we might be able to recruit some from out of states or from some areas that are already mm -hmm. established, but. You know, I think if we did a poll around our university systems up and down the coast of Texas. I think that we'd find some pretty qualified individuals. Yeah, they, they, that half we the, can just attract them. Half them. the battle is getting the word out. Right. And with the passage of this legislation, I think it's going to open more doors, more interest. You know, so Texas, the last bastion of uh, <laughs> of uh, no aquaculture, oyster aquaculture. Um, that's all going to change, and you know, it's going to be a change for the better. Absolutely. Those that want to um, learn more about this, certainly feel free to contact CCA. You can, uh, there's an article in the Texas Saltwater Fishing Magazine that, mm -hmm. that, that speaks to this. Um, but I would also recommend that you contact your local representative or your local senator, your senator. It's out of the house. So contact your senator, tell them you support House Bill 1300, Oyster Mariculture, and help us to get this thing passed because we, uh, we're ready for a change. And this is a good change for Texas. And I, I, the, the only thing I want to make sure that people know is that without Representative Hunter, you know, Joe and I didn't know what to do. You had a better, a better clue, uh, Shane, but we were, I was very naive about this process. And It's and an eye-opener for sure. <laughs> Todd welcomed us into his office, brought in his chief of staff, and said, okay, this is a good, this is good legislation. This is what y'all are going to have to do. And, you know, that's what. No, they've been great. They it's, have. It's, it's good to have a you know, great champion behind it. And, and we have that in, in Hunter and, and in Colcourse. And, um, Certainly. Yeah, we appreciate all the work yeah. that they've done. I really like that 30-second uh, that bit y'all did uh, that, with Hunter's office <laughs> in, in your restaurant. That was <laughs> super cool. And, um, yeah, this is creating a new industry in Texas. Yeah, very exciting. Um, how often do you get to do something like that? Once in a lifetime, and mine's going away quick, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hurry. Let's Come on. get this done. We got to get it done this session. Yes, absolutely. Guys, thank you. This has All been right. fun. I hope people enjoy it. And like I said, if anybody wants to learn more, feel free to contact CCA office. We'll be glad Thanks, to CCA, for everything they do. Yep. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.